Good evening. I want to welcome any visitors that might be here. We are in the last three chapters of Amos. So if you have a Bible, why don't you turn to Amos chapter 7, please. Amos chapter 7, the ninth tonight. Um, we come to the third and final division of the book of Amos, chapter 7 through 9. And there are five visions given to Amos regarding the judgment of Israel. You have the judgment of locusts in 7, 1 through 3, the vision of fire, 7, 4 through 6, the vision of the plumb line, 7 through 9. And then you have the vision of the summer fruit in chapter 8, verse 1 through 3, and the final one, the vision of the Lord standing at the pagan altar to judge it in chapter 9, 1 through 4. The first four are um, prefaced by the phrase, thus uh, the Lord God showed me. And the word behold uh, is before all of them in uh, 7 1, 7 4, um, and 8 1. The, um, the fifth one is different. I saw the Lord, um, as we see that, and also verse 7 of chapter 7. So you see a very dis- little distinction between the two, but. It's still declaring that it is God's revelation. The vision comes from him, not from Amos' source himself. Even as Peter says, the men of old did not speak of their own impulse and origin, but as they were carried along by the Spirit of God. In Second Peter chapter 1, verse um, 3 and 4, or ver- verse 20, 19 to 21. Um, the first two vision judgments are, um, are averted, as we'll see, through intercession by Amos. The third and the fourth have no intercession indicating that judgment could not be averted. And then the fifth presents the certainty of the present captivity with the promise of future restoration. And we've seen this with Hosea, with Joel. God judges Israel for her sin, but there is a future restoration of the remnant. So we reject replacement theology. We do not accept that, where people teach that the church now is Israel and God has nothing to do with Israel. We reject it altogether. You will not find it anywhere in Scripture. Anywhere at all. And so the five uh, progressive, um, uh, or the five judgments are progressive, and they intensify as they move along. And um, it contains some prose from chapter 7, verse 1 to chapter 8, verse 3. You have prose. Then you have poetry um, in in a few areas that we'll point out. Now, we begin here in chapter 3, and we did all all chapter 7 this morning in depth. So we're not going to belabor the, to go to the in-depth that we did, but we'll move through general commentary in chapter 7 here. Uh, verse 1 through 3, you have the vision of the locusts. Um, Amos says, Thus the Lord God showed me. Behold, he formed locusts swarming at the beginning of the late crop. Indeed, it was the late crop after the king's mowing. And so it was when they had finished eating the grass, the land that I said, O Lord God, forgive, I pray, all that Jacob might stand, for he is small. So the Lord relented concerning this, and it, shall, and it shall not be, said the Lord. So here in the first judgment, um, God reveals to the prophet, again, we're not told whether it was a, um, something that came to him quickly or that, but yet a vision is while he is awake. A dream is while you're asleep, um, um, there's a distinction made throughout the scriptures. Uh, and Daniel's another one who was with dreams. But um, the vision here, again, it originates from God, Yahweh Elohim. Uh, you find that again in 714 and 81. Uh, verse 7 is a little different. The vision um, is made known to him. Uh, the locust is God's judgment, not a natural phenomenon, as we said. We saw that in the book of Joel also, as we see the, the locust um, plague there. And the word behold expressing the uh, uh, exclamation of paying attentive perception that it is God doing this, not just natural thing. Um, sometimes people ask me, do I believe that maybe some of the natural phenomena that takes place in floods and hurricanes and that could it be God judging nations? Yes, it could. I just don't know which one. He certainly is. Uh, he holds that grain, right? Uh, we re- we've read this in, in Amos, right? We're in the drought. I just came back from Colombia. Colombia's been in a drought. When we landed, we brought rain with us. It rained for four days. <laughs> okay? But they've had a two-year drought. 
So God does uh, judge nations today. You know, we just sometimes it's natural phenomena. You know, you have cycles that go through the earth. Also, uh, if you believe in global warming, like the cellular bridge, but um, um, but the earth does go through cycles, and God does intervene miraculously uh, to deal with nations. But sometimes they just don't repent. So then, ultimate judgment comes. Um, here's the beginning of the crops, the, the final harvest gathering, uh, the last one for winter, around April, March. And, uh, but it's after the king's mowing, so the, the king would take his share of taxes, and then the rest would be for the people. And then he saw the, the uh, locusts, the, the grasshoppers, eating it up. And he's moved in heart because nothing would be left for the people. They would be starving to death. And so he intercedes in verse 2, uh, as he sees his devouring of, 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 the, of the harvest, and he's moved with compassion that God might forgive um, the people. Uh, righteousness of the of the uh, the prayer of a righteous man avails much. James five sixteen tells us, and we saw that Abraham also averted judgment for Lot in Genesis eighteen as he prayed for him. And um, the phrase "he is small" refers to the insignificance, as we said, of Jacob. I mean, man, no matter how smart he thinks he is, no matter how powerful of a ruler he, he might be, no matter how great an army he must have, when you compare him to God, he's insignificant. And we're going to get the title of God, the Lord of hosts, which is the captain of the armies of heaven. No one can stand before him. He's not worried about how big a mouth you have or how highly you think of yourself or how much power you think you have. To him, it's nothing. So in verse 3, God responded and withheld the hand of judgment. He relented. Again, that's not a contradiction to his nature. When you and I repent, we repent from our sin, we turn around, we change our life. But the word repent is for God means sign. And he, he was moved with sorrow and pain. And he here demonstrates his long suffering and his patience towards Man, so he doesn't perish. And sometimes God just waits. He waits. Why does he wait so long? Because he doesn't make mistakes. He waited 120 years for the days of Noah. And so that whoever perishes, they will never be able to say, God, you never were patient with me. You, you didn't wait long enough. And so he's not... A man that he should repent on the Son of Man. Has he not said it? Will he not do it? Numbers twenty three nineteen, And also 1 Samuel fifteen twenty nine, And so in verse 4 through 6, the vision of fire comes. The second one. He says, Thus saith the Lord, show me. The Lord, show me. Behold, the Lord God called for a conflict of fire, and it consumed the great deep of devouring the territory. Then I said, O Lord God, cease, I pray, all that Jacob may stand, for he is small. So the Lord relented concerning this also shall not be, said the Lord. So here again, once again, we have the vision that is given to him, um, a conflict of fire. Uh, once again, behold, pay close attention, this is God directly bringing judgment. Um, though fire at times is used figuratively of God's judgment and of God, it's a literal judgment that takes place. All these um, visions are literal. The judgments are literal. He averts these because of intercession. And once again, um, the great deep there uh, speaks of the, um, the subterranean waters that the pagans thought the, the pagans' God's control. And they could avert and put it out. God says, nobody can put this out if I pour out my wrath. It, it's it, it's unable un to do that. And so even um, the territories would be devoured, literally eaten up. And if fire catches uh, uh, an area, whether it be a forest or a, a group of housing or whatever it is, when, it, when it's done, there's nothing standing. It just eats up. Fire is an interesting thing, you know. Uh, fire, wind, and water, it's, it's destructive. Snow is destructive. All those elements of nature. And so verse 5 through 6, you have... The intercession, um, once again, he intercedes because Jacob is small and significant. Um, he, he pleads uh, that God would uh, uh, forgive, would cease. Uh, and once again, the, the aspect of repentance from the point of view of God, his long-suffering, his mercy. Uh, stop and think, 
that if God had not been so patient with you, where would you be? If you would have said, okay, three and that's it. Four, five, that's it. It's amazing how patient we want God to be with me. But you, that's a different matter. I can understand why God's not as patient with you. But with me, I can understand. That's how we think. And if that's not how we think, that's how we act. Because of our sin nature. Because of the bias we have in our own person. You get the verse 7 through 9. You have the vision of the plumb line now, the third one. He says, Thus he showed me, behold, the Lord stood on a wall made with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And he said, I see a plumb line. Then the Lord said, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will not pass by them anymore. The high places of Isaac will be uh, desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. I will rise with the sword against the house of Jeroboam. And so once again, it's nothing new. It's an ongoing thing, hitting them from different directions. Uh, the prophetic formula, again, uh, the vision of God. Uh, behold, once again, very, very consistent. Pay attention. The vision reveals Adonai, uh, equivalent to the Greek kurios, master, uh, owner. Uh, not this time Yahweh Elohim. And he stands at a wall, constructing this wall with a plumb line from the top to the bottom, vertical. And the plumb line is always straight. This is a, a, a metaphor that is used throughout Scripture to illustrate God's uh, holiness, his, his standard, uh, his word. Jeremiah 31, Isaiah 28, Zechariah 12, other passages. And here again, the judgment would, be, uh, would not be averted this time. So God hangs a plumb line. The wall is Israel. And, and Israel does not measure up to God's word, to God's holiness. She has deviated. She has corrupted his worship. She has ascribed the worship of Yahweh in terms of syncretism, bringing everything that's evil and pagan under the umbrella of the worship of Yahweh. And so there's a lot of people, you know, and often people come to me and they, and they, and they come up on Sunday morning or whenever and they're talking to me and, and, um, and I say, are you a Christian? She go, then they go, sometimes they say, well, I'm a Catholic. I go, oh, okay, well, I say, you know, uh, do you believe the Pope is infallible? No. Do you, be, do you believe you can pray to Mary? No. Well, then you're not a Catholic, you're a Christian. But if you yes to those things, then you're a Catholic, you're not a Christian. If you believe in the dogmas of Rome, praying the rosary, confessing to the fathers and all this stuff and transubstantiation and that, then you're a Catholic. You're not a Christian. It's simple. You take the test. I know what I'm talking about. I was raised a Catholic. I was born a Catholic. <laughs> I lived in Mexico City. I've, I've been through South America. I've been to the Philippines where people crucify themselves in Easter. Catholicism in the United States is a pussycat. Outside the United States, it's a lion. Tear your head right off. The Catholic Church is, is strong today with the young people of Mariology, the worship of Mary. Petition online to make her a co-redemptress with Jesus Christ. Blasphemous. It's amazing. And so here, he says he will not pass by them anymore. Judgment is short. The particular place that will fall into judgment, the high place of Isaac, the pagan shrines, idolatrous places, desolate means empty, abandoned. You look through the kings and you see this. You see through the prophets, Isaiah and everything. The sanctuaries are the idol temples of Dan and Bethel. Gilgal that we've been reading about. Place of spiritual fornication as well as physical fornication because of the fertility cults. They were rampant. Uh, you remember Solomon loved many women, foreign women, and they, they stole his heart away. And he built temples for them on the Mount of Olives, right across the valley of where the temple stood. Amazing. The one rising with the sword against the house of Jeroboam is Yahweh. He sees all the evil. Nothing escapes him. He's a pure rise to behold evil with any condonance, any permission. 
The sin obstructs our relationship with God. Psalm 66, 18 says, if, we, if I regard iniquity in my heart, God does not hear me. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, his hands not short, his ears not heavy, he cannot hear, but our sins have separated us from his God, from our God, and he turns his back on us. It's just like a parent and a child when there's some kind of falling out. They, you know, they're living in the same house, but they look at each other. There's a silence of a husband or a wife, you know, it's not, it's not right. Until you get right, then there's the hug, then there's the kiss, and there's the joking around, right? The relationship is brought together. It's real simple. Now in chapter 7 here now, verse 10 down to 17, you have the complaint of Azariah, or Amaziah, against um, Amos. He says, then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has uh, conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. Uh, for thus uh, Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel shall surely be led away captive from their own land. And Amaziah said to Amos, Go, you see her, flee to the land of Judah, there eat bread, and there prophesy. But never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, and it is the royal residence. Now, the false accusations of Amaziah against Amos are, are kind of comical because Amaziah senses written accusations. We remember the book of Nehemiah, um, uh, Tobiah and them, they also, and Sambalat, sent false accusation letters. And, uh, you know, in the book of Daniel, they accuse Daniel falsely also. They always have people that don't like Christianity, don't like you, whatever it is. And things are going to come up like that. Um, he's a pagan priest of Bethel. Bethel, the house of God, has been turned to Beth-Aben, the house of wickedness. He's not of the Levitical order. There are priests that have been placed there by Jeroboam I to Jeroboam II of the common people. And um, he probably sent it to the capital of the kingdom down in Samaria. But Amaziah, his two accusations that Amos conspired against Jeroboam II, which is absolutely false. There's no evidence in it at all. And also that the land was not able to bear his prophecy, his words. In other words, he kept proclaiming the same thing. You're going to go to captivity. You're going to go to captivity. Jeremiah did the same thing for 50-some years. They didn't believe it. They finally ended up going to captivity. So one is false. The other one is true. And they just couldn't stand him. They just were tired of him. He was like a heavy burden on him. In verse 11, the word of Amos is mixed here with lies and truth. Amos was falsely accused of declaring Jeroboam would die by the sword. He never said that. Some believe it's implied in the fact that they were going to go into captivity, but the fact is that he's quoting his words. So this is what he said. Um, Amos never said that. And um, Amos had declared that Israel would certainly be led into captivity. And here again, this one is very true. 722, Tilgat takes the uh, northern kingdom there into Assyria, disperses them through the various lands. And um, what you have, the result is the repopulation of Samaria, where you get the Samaritans, half Jew, half Gentile. And that's why there was such a hatred between the Jew and the Gentile. Verse 12, down to 13, you have the caustic words of uh, Amaziah um, to Amos. And there, here in these words, um, Amaziah commanded Amos to, uh, to leave um, the northern kingdom, uh, go you seer. And he's implying that he's a hireling, that he's uh, really um, a higher prophet, and that's all he's in it for. Go prophesy down in the south where you're from. Chapter 1, verse 1 tells us that, um, the reign of Uzziah. And um, uh, the seer, again, is another word for a prophet because he could see the future by the uh, revelation of God, not of his own ability. Uh, Samuel's called a seer. Uh, Gad, the prophet, uh, is called uh, uh, David's seer, and others. And so Amaziah commanded Amos to stop prophesying in verse 13. Um, Bethel was the house of God. They thought it was their shrine, their, their place of religious worship. But again, because it, it had been turned into Beth-Avon, house of wickedness, and it was a king's sanctuary, the tabernacle, the temple. So when you were speaking against it, you were speaking against the king. They both went together. As I said this morning, the White House and the presidency, they're both tied together. When you see one, you think of the other. And, and Bethel was a royal 
residence, uh, his sovereign dominion, uh, representing his authority. Therefore, it was um, a complete um, disrespect for him to an extent. But again, these are the people of God, and God sends the prophets to call them back. Just as you, if you're a loving parent, and your child um, gets into his teens or even less than that, and he starts messing up and doing different things, and he gets into trouble, you are there every step of the way to warn him, to bring consequences, to to woo him back, even if he gets into some deep stuff and some nasty stuff. And you're hoping to woo him back or her back. Not because you hate them, but because you love them. And this is God. This is the heart of God. The heart of God is, is, is manifested through, through his instruments, those who proclaim the good news, those who proclaim repentance, those who proclaim judgment to come, those who proclaim that people can be saved and forgiven for their sins by the grace of God. The whole motive is love. If I hated you, I'd just tell you to go to hell. I'm not going to tell you how to get to heaven. I'd let you go. But the fact that we proclaim the gospel that people might escape hell is the greatest evidence of our love for them. Yet it's interpreted as hate, right? And self-righteousness. It's wrong. And so, 14 down to 17, the response of Amos here to Amaziah. He says, Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor the son of a prophet, but I was a sheep breeder, the tender of sycamore fruit. So his real occupation prior to this is twofold, a shepherd and a, a fruit picker and gatherer. He wasn't born uh, in a family of prophets. His father was not a prophet. He had no technical training. And then the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. So he knew exactly the time when God called him to the ministry and called him to be a prophet. And so you and I know exactly when God convicted us of our sin and when we repented of our sins and we made a good decision for Christ to come into our life. As I said this morning, often people, I ask them, well, how long you known the Lord? And they go, oh, I've known the Lord all my life. I've always loved God. I know they're religious people. They don't know what born again is. Because when you're a Christian, you know you didn't always love God. And you know you have not always known God. The, the, the psalm says that we come forth from our mother's womb speaking lies and we thought the baby was crying. Amazing. And he sends him. God calls him. He initiates. God anoints him. God sends him. Those are three key things if you are going to be successful as a Christian in whatever God calls you. He calls you. He sends you. He anoints you for the task. So that he is doing it. So when you are used of God, he gets all the glory and you stay out of the way. Those are the rules. <laughs> Those are his rules. Verse 16. Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy. So now he turns to Amaziah. Okay, you've had your say. Now listen to what God has to say to you. You say, do not prophesy against Israel. And do not spout or sprinkle like little rain droppings against the house of Israel. Things that are irritating and, you know, they've had droughts and all of a sudden here's some little bit of water. So he says, therefore, thus saith the Lord, your wife shall be a harlot in the city. The judgment that comes upon his wife and his children is not because God... Is vengeful, not because he's unkind. These are not the words of Amos either. They're the words of God. It's because his wife and children were involved in this whole thing. Whenever it's not stated, you have to always understand it by knowing the nature of God. He is holy. He is good. He is kind. He knows all things. He can make no mistake. His judgments are perfect. So when God's wrath falls upon somebody or he predicts some kind of calamity, you know they deserve it. Okay? There's no contradiction. There's no big question here. Korah rebelled against 
Moses and Aaron and 250 men. And Moses said, well, you know, let's ask God if we've taken too much in ourselves. Let's ask him to do some weird, strange thing like open the earth up and swallow the one that God don't like. Okay. And then their children and families also because they were in cahoots with it, right? Ezekiel 18 says, God will not punish the father for the children's sins or the children for the father's sins. Each one pays for their own sins, right? Simple. Now, you and I may make that kind of mistake, but God doesn't. Not at all. And so, here again, his wife, and of course, she would become a harlot because when the Syria came in, they would rape the women, then set them up as prostitutes, defiling them. And then um, he says, your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword. So they would be killed by the enemy when Assyria came in in 722 or within those three years. Your land will be divided by a survey line. You would lose all property and you shall die in a defiled land. He would be taken and transpopulated to another area of Assyria. And he would not see his family. He would not be part of Israel. He would be mixed in with other people. He would die all alone in a pagan land. And Israel shall surely be led away captive from his own land. And so all of his words meant nothing. All of his attempt to stop the prophet. God sent the prophet. You fight against the prophet. You're fighting against God. It's real simple. When you get to chapter 8, you have now the vision of the summer fruit, the first three verses. You have the vision revealed to Amos. Chapter 8, verse 1 says, Thus say the Lord, the Lord showed me. So the formula changes here. Behold, a basket of summer fruits. And he said, Amos, what do you see? So I said, a basket of summer fruits. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will not pass by them anymore. And the songs of the temple shall be wailing in that day, says the Lord God. Many dead bodies everywhere, um, they shall be thrown out in silence. And so here in verse 1, the prophetic formula um, of this prophecy, a little different, but it's still divine. Behold is stated again, calling attention. The vision of summer fruits, indicating ripened fruit. There's a, a, a play on words. The fruit was ready, ripe to eat. Israel was ripe for what? Judgment. Ripe for judgment. The question to Amos here is what he saw. He said, basket of summer fruits. He would not pass by again. In other words, the line is drawn. Judgment is right around the corner. There's no more patience. So the pun here is between the word summer and end. Season is over. Israel is ripe for judgment. I will not pass by them anymore. In verse 3, the horrible consequences of the judgment, the song of their pagan temples will be turned into wailing this day, uh, the Lord declares. And the song of God um, uh, that he refused earlier in chapter 6, verse 5. He said, I will refuse your songs. I don't even want to listen to them. They, they're, they're noise to my ears. Uh, there would be many corpses cast out to the ground. How many would be slain in the solemn quietness? It would not be a day of joy, but of just grief and, and horror. In verse 4, down to 14, you have the impending judgment of Israel. Um, verse 4 and 6, he says, Hear this, you who swallow up the needy and make the poor um, of the land fail, saying, when, when will the new moon be passed? that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath that we may um, trade wheat, and make the ephod small and the shekel large, falsifying the skill by deceit, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, even sell the bad wheat. So here again, you see the greed. You see the evil of this. And in verse um, for here, God commanded the evil leaders, and that's the context, mark it well. 
that were swallowing up the needy and uh, causing the poor to fail, meaning to desist, to be destroyed by confiscating their properties, oppressing them. Um, uh, and they just had no compassion. God quotes their arrogant words about their corrupt financial gain, saying they could not wait till the feast days were over in verse 5 to make more money. When will the new moons be over? All oh, these stinking holidays, I could be making money right now. You know the problem with the United States? Not capitalism. It's greed. Simple greed. Nothing wrong. You want to, if you're good at realty, you're good as a lawyer, you're good as whatever, you make a lot of money, more power to you. But there are rules, there's consequences, you pay your taxes, everything else, there's right and wrong, and if you do wrong, you go to jail. But the problem is all laws and everything have been discarded, and now there's greed. And you don't have to, it just, it, it, what is going on before Congress with Hillary? What should we say about our normal society? That's the top of the echelon. That's the Secretary of State who's flat out lying, who has covered up truth. So what do we say about the rest of the American people? Like pastor, like sheep, like priest, like prophet. And my people love it so, the prophet says. Everything breaks down. Morals, ethics, right, wrong, consequences, penalties. So every man does that which is right in his own eyes. Anarchy. All trade was suspended the first day of the month. Can't wait to get over it. They cannot wait for the Sabbath to pass, that they may trade wheat. They hated to lose the day of making money. Remember in Nehemiah chapter 10, 31, 13, 15 through 22? I like Nehemiah. Nehemiah didn't pluck his beard. He plucked theirs. I smacked him. If I find you in this gate, I'm going to knock you out. Don't be at the gate here on the Sabbath. They were being dishonest with false weights. Making the ephod small and the shekel large, falsifying their scales of deceit. Archaeological digs have found true ways and false ways. Of course, when you're buying something, you want to make sure it's a lightweight. When you're selling it, you want to make sure it's a heavyweight. They both say one pound. Back in the 60s in Time magazine, there was a picture of a butcher and a little old lady you know, getting a piece of meat, and, and, and you, you don't see it, and they're both smiling at each other, and, 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 the, and the lady is pushing up on the scale, and on the other side, the butcher's pulling down on the scale. It's greed, and you're smiling all along. It was wrong, it was against the law. Leviticus 19.36, James 5, 1 through 6 speaks about that greed, the rich. Nothing's ever enough. What destroys people is a lack of contentment. You have to live within your means and always be benevolent to others and always put something away. Don't spend all that you have. Don't live beyond your means. This is the problem of America. And with the entitlement, people love, you know, it's better than spending their own, your own money, right? Somebody else's money. Simple. And so the socialistic propaganda sounds good as long as there's other people's money. But once everybody's money is gone, socialism's a nightmare. Once it gets there, that's what the entitled liberal young people of the United States do not understand. And it does come to an end sooner or later. There's only so many cookies in the jar. And once they're gone, you'll be fighting for the crumbs. It's just the way it is. They would uh, foreclose on the debts of the poor, the needy. They would sell them into slavery. Even for the smallest debt, a pair of um, 
sandals here and sell the poor for silver. He's just heartless, um, no concern for them. Leviticus 25, 39, Deuteronomy 15, 12, the law gave a place for people to work out their debt six years to be set free on the seventh. They were ignoring all this. Um, verse 7 down through 10, the promise of God uh, to punish the evil um, leaders here now, because that's the context of the leaders. 7 through 9, he says, The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, Surely I will never forget any of their works. Shall the land not tremble for this? And everyone mourn who dwells in it. All of it shall swell like the river, heave and subside like the river of Egypt. And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will um, darken the earth in the broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like mourning and on an on only sun and its end like a bitter day. So, verse 7 here down to 10, look at 7. Yahweh swore by the very pride of Jacob that he would never forget their sinful works. The pride of Jacob refers to Yahweh himself. He's swearing by himself. He's not going to be swearing by Jacob who's proud. The pride of Jacob refers to Jacob belonged to Yahweh. He has sworn by his holiness earlier in chapter 4, verse 2. Since God can swear by no one higher, he swears by himself. Hebrews 6, 13 says. He takes an oath upon himself, not upon Jacob. And then in, in 8 there, um, Yahweh asked, uh, will they not fall under my judgment? By two rhetorical questions, shall the land not tremble for this and every morn? Everyone mourn who dwells in it? Yes. If you say no, that's, you, get, you get an F. You fail. It's yes. The word tremble, some say it's an earthquake, but it's just, I believe, to the fear, to the quaking of the understanding of what's coming. This is taken by some as an earthquake, but again, um, there's no evidence that is speaking about them. It's a twofold rhetorical question that demands only one answer to both. Yes. Notice the affirmation of their judgment is likened to that of the Nile River in verse 8 still. All of it should be like the river. Heave and subside like the river of Egypt. This is the uh, reference to the uh, Nile River that it floods the time often nearly and it just destroys everything. It wipes it out. All the good soil, everything. And in verse 9, the prophet uh, looks down the time of Jacob's trouble now. So you have to follow this, the key word here. And it shall come to pass in that day. That day is tied with the day of the Lord. He jumped into the future. That I will make the sun go down and the moon, and I will darken the earth in the, in the broad daylight. That's the day of the Lord. That begins right after the rapture church takes place. It's simultaneous, okay? Um, God will do this during that time of God's wrath or tribulation, affecting nature as well as the moon, the stars. This is not an eclipse. Uh, Amos has spoken about it in 2.16, 5.18 through 20. Uh, he'll talk about it in 9.11. Uh, the theme of that day, the day of the Lord comes up. And in verse 10, Amos returned to the present judgment now of God that would bring great sorrow upon Israel, though it also applies in long term, so it's short term and long term for the tribulation. Sounding of wailing. Listen, I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. Not only in the day when Assyria would come, but in Israel in the long term during the great tribulation. Expressions of grief. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. Signs of mourning, lamenting, grief, affliction. A sense of hopelessness, of no posterity. I will make it like mourning for an only son. In its end, like a bitter day, your only son dies, the end of your posterity. There's no more generations. Because a woman's name has changed. Your name is passed on through your son, not your daughter. It's real simple. 
Each judgment here we see becoming more severe as he moves along. Now, in verse 11 to 14, we have the removal of the word of God from their ears. He says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, not a thirst of water, but of hearing the word of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea, from the north to east. They shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. In that day, the fair virgin and the strong young man shall faint from thirst, those who swear by the sin of Samaria, who say, As your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall f- fall and never rise again. The removal here of the word of God from their ears. Sometimes we take the word of God for granted because they rejected the word of the Lord and corrupted it. Uh, no prophet would be sent to them anymore. Again, he says, Behold, the days are coming. The Lord God. Famine in the land, not of bread, but of the word of God, of hearing it. Um, they would not have any revelation from God. Um, it would, they would be groping in the darkness, hopelessness. Once you know the Lord and you know the word of God, you understand when, when you're not walking with God that you're groping in the darkness. You know, when you were in the world and I was in the world, we were in darkness, but we didn't know it. You know what I mean? But now that you're born again and you have light and you've moved back to darkness, you know there is no such thing that you don't know. The famine, the drought is of the word of God. It's more severe than water and bread. Trust me. Now notice the outcome of the famine of the word. They shall wander from sea to sea. Some say the sea to sea is the Mediterranean to the salt sea. Um, and, and the rest, north and east, and to and fro. The whole idea is that they will be looking all over the land of Israel, and they will not find it. God will not send prophets anymore. Verse 12. God would be silent towards them, leaving them to themselves. That's a horrible thought. You know there was 400 years of silence, right, between the Old and the New Testament. Malachi is the last prophet, and then John the Baptist opens the New Testament with the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. So the rejection of God's words ultimately will result in given, being given over to the lie in Second Thessalonians 2, 10, 11, when the rapture happens. Those who reject the gospel, the church is removed. God will hand them over to the lie of the Antichrist. And many that have heard now possibly will not be able to believe I can't tell you absolutely that's what it means completely, but I wouldn't want to be there. To those that much is given, much more is required. The consequence of famine of the word in 13 and 14, 13, the phrase has a twofold fulfillment. In that day, there it is again. Short term, the day of Amos. Long term, the tribulation in that day that Amos has covered in chapter 5, 8, and here again. Um, Human strength, in verse 13, will not be enough. The fair virgin, the strong young man, shall faint from thirst. So in other words, no matter how strong you are, how young you are, how whatever it is, you know, when you think that you can handle these kind of things apart from God, you quickly find out you can't. Uh, blood and guts only get you so far. Then they get you killed. It's just that simple. Notice... Um, in verse 14, those who trusted in their idolatrous apostasy will go into captivity. The people who make oaths by the golden calf of Bethel and Dan. In verse 14, we swear by the sin of Samaria. Now, of course, these are the words of the prophet. They wouldn't say it was sin, but God reveals what it is. Your oath is sin. It's not on God. It's an idol. Beersheba, also in the south, full of idolatry. They'll all fall. They won't rise again. 722, Shalmaneser fulfills it. He took 27,390 persons into exile. And so in chapter 9, we have the vision of Yahweh at the pagan altar judging 
Israel now. Verse 1 through 10, you have the judgment on idolatrous Israel. 1 through 4, the judgment of God would be total and complete. Listen to what he says. I saw the Lord standing by the altar, and he said, Strike the doorposts, that the threshold may shake and break them on the heads of them all. I will slay the last of them with the sword. He who flees from them shall not get away. And he who escaped from them shall not be delivered. Though they dig into hell, from there my hand shall take them. Though they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. And though they hide themselves on top of Carmel, from there I will search and take them. Though they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, from there I will command the serpent and they shall bite them. Though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the sword and they shall slay them. I will set my eyes on them for harm and not for good. You don't want God talking to you like this. You really don't. If you uh, remember as you were growing up and you got yourself in some real big trouble and your dad confronted you and he talked to you like he has never talked to you before, you know you were shaking in your boots. This is God right now. He makes it very clear here. In verse 1, Amos saw God standing, an imperative command to strike and destroy the pagan temple here, possibly Bethel, and fall on their heads. The word doorpost indicates the capital of the pillar supporting the roof, collapsing the temple completely on them, shaking the threshold and covering the entrances of the temple. No one would escape. The same word, therefore, doorpost, is found in verse 7, the origin of the Philistines, Kephir. It's the same word. Notice God would kill the remainder by the sword, those if any got away. In other words, the whole idea of this passage is not that there's a contradiction. The emphasis of God is no one will escape. No matter where they go, no matter what they do. If some did escape, none would escape or be delivered. The personal pronoun I, as reference to God, appears six times from verse um, 1 through 4. God would be the one fighting and destroying them. God is their adversary and describes the thoroughness of his justice of judgment here of those apostatizing from the hand of uh, from the side of God, uh, by the hand of Assyria. Um, he would search them out and find them all, God being all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful, from verse 2 to 4. They could not hide and shield, that's the word there, down where the two-fold compartment, nor heaven, God would find them, take them down, verse 2. And they would not be able to hide on the top of Mount Carmel in some cave, um, he would find them and he would uh, kill them. Um, they would um, not be able to hide anywhere. They wouldn't be safe in the sea. God would search them out and command a, a sea serpent to bite them. Now, he's made this a case before, earlier, about the guy who had a bear and he ran and then he put his hand on, the, on his house and a scorpion bit him. Remember? Okay. Um, they would not be safe in captivity. God would command the sword to kill them. His eyes were on them for harm, not for good. This is not overnight. This is not a one-time thing. This is not, you know, um, the ill patience of God. This is after long suffering. This is warning after warning. This is 270-some years. Now you think of our nation, we're only about 130-some years, 230-some years old. Do you think God's been warning America? Absolutely. What have we done? We've rejected the warnings. We've asked God to leave us alone. We've kicked them out of our schools. We've kicked them out of our government. We've kicked them out of society. So God has said, all right, I'll back off. I'll leave you to yourself. 
I'll leave you to your greed. I'll leave you to your paganism. Let's see what happens. It doesn't take long before we reap the whirlwind, does it? Once God removes his hand. Verse 5 down to 6, you have the omnipotence of God is illustrated as able to carry out his judgment. Verse 5 says, The Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell there mourn, of all it shall swell like the river and subside like the river of Egypt. He who builds his layers on the sky and has founded his strata in the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. Amazing. These verses are rhythmic meter like a hymn. We have the Song of Moses, the Song of Deborah, in Deuteronomy 32, 34, and Judges 5, 12. Uh, some of the scriptures have poetry, some have prose. We have the poetical books of Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon. The identity of God is the Lord of hosts. That's the captain of the armies of heaven. No one can defeat him. No one can survive him. Uh, no human army can oppose him or escape him. Yahweh is able to melt the earth, bringing mountains, um, bringing mourning to man, um, executing his judgment to the end, like the river here of Egypt that swells and recedes and it destroys everything. No one can stop it. Yahweh, in verse 6, who created and sustains all of creation, this is the one they have to deal with. Remember we read before, prepared to meet your God, O Israel. He reigned here, they didn't repent. He did, they didn't repent. And he said, okay, prepare to meet your God. Same thing here. His name is Yahweh, the covenant God. This is the third doxology in Amos. The first one is in 4.13. The second one in 5.8-9. And right here is the third. Three doxologies in the book of Amos. Now notice 7-10. through 10, The people of Israel were no different than the heathen despite their privilege at this point. Listen to what God says here, 7 through 10. He says, Are you not like the people of Ethiopia to me, O children of Israel, says the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt, the Philistine from Kephir? That's the same word as before, the door, uh, the doorpost. And the Syrians from Ker? Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom. And I will destroy it from the face of the earth, yet I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, says the Lord. For surely I will command and will sift the house of Israel among all nations as grain is sifted in the sieve, yet not the smallest grain shall fall to the ground. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say, the calamity shall not overtake nor confront us. Really? Verse 7, the three rhetorical questions asked by their covenant God, Yahweh, reveals the presumed and title pride of Israel about their election that had come to their own mind. They have only one answer, all of them. Yes. In other words, they were like the people of Ethiopia, the Philistines, and Syria. Sinful people. So God would deal with them according to that. Amos numbered and listed Judah and Israel in the first two chapters, the judgment of the nations, along with the heathen nations. Why? Because they were living like the nations. This is the same thing here. God was sovereign in control of the nations, directing Israel from Egypt, the Philistine from Kephir, and the Syrians from Ker. But they were all sinful people. At this point, Israel is lined up with them. No different. You know, it's interesting. People always uh, get all freaked out when they hear me preach sometimes, especially about eternal security. And, and there was a gentleman this morning. He says, no, no, you know, we're here. We're always visiting from Texas. So we come here and we just thank you for the word, this and that. He said, now, now you're not talking about the believers. They just lose their joy, right? I said, they lose more than their joy. I said, you don't walk with God. You go back in the world. You won't make it to heaven. And he kind of looked at me. I said, if that's not the case, why write the New Testament? Why warn the believer? 
All the warnings are to believers. These are the people of God. You can't apostatize from something unless you're there. Apostates are not non-believers. Apostates are believers that have walked away from God. Don't use the word lost salvation. It's not in the scriptures. The Bible says, don't be deceived. Don't go back in the world. Don't turn from me. Don't apostatize. Let's use biblical terms so we don't have to redefine them. Only a believer can do that. A non-believer is dead. And so, here again, he treats them as non-believers. He's observing the sinful kingdom, Israel. He would judge her. Death and captivity await her. Complete destruction. But not as a whole. He has the remnant, as we'll see. Again, the word behold. Pay attention. The omniscient God. The omnipotent God. Nothing escapes him. There in nine, Yahweh would command the, the scatter of his people in his judgment. Notice he certainly would sift the house of Israel among all nations and leave himself a remnant. The illustration is vivid. Um, and guaranteeing a certain remnant. As grain is sifted in the sieve, it says, verse 9, yet not the smallest grain shall fall to the ground. Now, you know, you know what that looks like. You know, you're putting rocks and dirt, and the dirt is fine and falls through. Okay? But there's a little twist here. The separation is the idea in the sifting of evil from the remnant. So when it says, yet not the smallest grain shall fall to the ground, meaning no matter how small that wicked person is, it will not go through the sieve. Only the good stuff falls through the sieve. The bastard stays on top. No matter how small, God takes it and judges him. Okay? So there's that little twist here. You've got to mark it well. In 722, Assyria took the northern kingdom. 586, the third siege, Judah is taken into Babylon. And all of those in Assyria go into Babylon also. Look at 10. Yahweh makes perfectly clear the guilty would perish. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword. He quotes the, um, the pompous words who say, The calamity shall not overtake nor confront us. Are you kidding me? But when you're in darkness and you don't believe in God and you just think that you can run your own life, you do and say some stupid things when you compare them to who God is and the consequences. In verse 11, down to 15, you have the restoration of Israel. Now we go into the future. There will be a final restoration of that remnant. Verse 11 says, On that day, there's that key phrase again, I will rise, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, watch the fall which has fallen down, and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it in the last um, in the last day, as in the days of old, that they may uh, possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does this thing. So in verse 11 and 12, um, this was quoted by, um, by James in the First Church Council in Acts 15, 16 through 18. It's the promise of Second Samuel 7, 12 through 13 to David, the ultimate setting up of the kingdom of Gid in the kingdom age. So the last, at the second coming of Christ, Jesus destroys the nations, sets up the, 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 uh, the armies of the nations, sets up the judgment of the nations. He moves into the kingdom age, the millennial kingdom. And the church reigns with Christ, but Israel rules and reigns on the earth to fulfill all the promises of the Old Testament. This is the remnant that he's talking about. Paul speaks about it in Romans 9, 10, and 11. So it's dealing with the last three and a half years of great tribulation as Israel flees to the wilderness in Revelation 6. God protects her in Petra for three and a half years. Then he comes back in the second coming and then settles the millennial kingdom, which Israel will reign. And the wife of Yahweh has been put away by divorce, spiritual adultery. The church is the virgin looking for a wedding. There's a big distinction. Don't confuse them. And God is choosing a bride for himself right now. 
of Jew and Gentile, one in Christ Jesus. As you know, Israel has been a nation for the third time in 1948, May 14. They're back in the land. Uh, Ezekiel 36, 37 is twofold, the land and then the pouring out of the Spirit, and that will happen. And so in 1967, the Six-Day War, Jerusalem took the Temple Mount for the first time. They hadn't been there for 2,000 years since. And some of you have gone to Israel, you've been there right at that wall. Notice the purpose and plan of God is declared that Israel rule and reign in the earth in the millennial, verse 12. The Gentiles will serve the Jews that they may possess the remnant of Edom, the perennial enemies of Israel. Um, and uh, the Gentiles are called, and the Gentiles are called by my name. And you have this throughout the scriptures. The one predicting this is Yahweh. Thus saith the Lord who does these things. 13 through 15, you have the blessing on the land and the Jewish people. So you have the fulfillment of all of this, a land of milk and honey. Notice uh, verse 13 says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, the treader of graves, uh, him who sows seed. The mountain shall dip, drip with a sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will bring back the captivity of my people, Israel. They shall build the waste cities and the inhabitants. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their land, and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them, says the Lord God. To who does the land belong to? Israel. Here you have the whole idea of the land flourishing, and the, the land's going to be re done for the millennial kingdom. The lamb will lay down with the lion, not in the lion. Um, uh, grapes, of many you plant them, burst up. The plowman will, will catch up with the reaper. It's going to be fertile. It's going to be just abundant. Um, God's going to bless them. You go this back to Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28. All the blessings are there. He will bring them back. He will put them in the land. He will secure them. And no one will ever remove them ever again what is it that we don't understand about god and israel the whole world hates israel the whole muslim world hates israel and then the united states little satan and big satan they call us and they are dead serious about destroying both israel in the United States. Pray for our nation. They say they're going to bring in 250,000 Muslim refugees. They outnumber us nine to one. In nine years, multiply nine times 250,000. The majority young, able men. The enemy is being brought in within the camp. They're already here. And so we see the day approaching, ladies and gentlemen. As God is ready to remove his church. There is no guarantee that the United States will be here. Israel absolutely will be here. Israel is safe until the Antichrist comes. Then she will give up her sovereignty to the Antichrist. Be deceived. Make a covenant. Daniel 9, 27. In the middle, Revelation 12, 6, she will flee to the wilderness. God will protect her. The remnant. God is faithful to his word. He cannot lie. And so, pray and watch that you be ready and found worthy to stand before the Son of Man and escape all these things that are about to come. That is the great exhortation. Lord, thank you for your grace, your goodness, and your love. Deal with our hearts. Cause us to be open to the work of your spirit. And Lord, just all that you're doing. Pray for our nation, our leaders, Lord. Father, there's such a spiritual blindness over our nation. It's a heavy, dark cloud. We pray in your mercy, Lord. That it's not too late. So until you tell us not to, Lord, we will continue to pray. As we're praying, if you're here tonight, if 
If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. If you believe Jesus is God who became man, made that payment on the cross, confirmed it through the resurrection, then you can call upon him and he will forgive you and give to eternal life. You must repent. You must ask him to forgive you if the Holy Spirit's convicted you. And he will take you at your word and begin to do an incredible work in your life. So, if you're over the internet or you're here, if you want to be born again, this is your prayer to him and he's going to forgive you right now and make you a brand new creature and then we want to give you a Bible absolutely free before you leave. This is your prayer. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me in the Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.